Good morning, church. I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, is there, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Excellent. Good morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Good to have you with us. We also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now joining us, and uh, so we've got a good one this morning, and I think this was written especially for me, okay, and so I get three shots at it, I get to hear it three times because I'm, we've got three services, but we're going to talk about joy and anxiety. Our current teaching series has been titled Rejoice in the Lord Always, it's a study through Philippians, and joy in anxiety is what we're going to talk about. How can we find joy and anxiety? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 9. So let me start off by giving you a list of uh, warning signs of excessive stress. You guys good with that? Okay. These are physical and emotional warning signs of excessive stress. Mood swings. That's, that's at the first of the list. Irritability. Exhaustion, no motivation, nervous twitch. A couple years ago, I had a nervous twitch in my eye, and everybody thought I was winking at them. Uh, Muscle tension, oh, neck, shoulders, back. Uh, How about this one, brain fog. You walk into a room, and you forgot why you're there. Anybody relate to that? Okay, so that can happen as a result of stress or you're trying to multitask or it could come as a result of TMB. Too many birthdays. Okay. There you go. Uh, Canker sores, headaches, migraines, weight gain or loss. I tend to gain weight. My wife loses weight with anxiety. Panic attacks. Panic moments where you're overwhelmed with anxiety. Fantasies about dying, running away, or if you're a Christian, the rapture. (laughs) Jesus, can I go now, please? 
Has anybody ever felt like that? Oh, yeah. Bad sleep patterns, high blood pressure or increased heart rate, general grumpiness, general grumpiness. Often people have asked me if I wake up grumpy in the morning, and I usually respond by saying, no, I let her sleep in. Don't tell Nancy I said that, okay? Actually, she's sitting out in the hallway right now listening. Don't let her come in and rush the pulpit here, okay? She'll probably hurt me. And so general grumpiness, self-medicating, self-medicating drugs, alcohol, food, shopping, gambling, aggressive driving. How many fit into that category? Yeah, baby. I've, I've had to slow down. Nancy won't let me aggressively drive. But this last, uh, yes, just yesterday, we were headed to the store together, <clears throat> and, and there was a, uh, a guy that just came up behind us fast and was aggressively driving, and, and I was only going 80, and, uh, <clears throat> and no, I, actually, I was going the speed limit. It was right over here off of Bell Road, wherever that is. It's back over here. And the guy just went past us really fast, and then we drove down the road a little ways further, and another guy came up and zipped in and out of the traffic, really aggressive driving. And it stood out to me because I was talking about this this weekend. I looked at their license plate. Where do you think they came from? California. Yeah. Yeah, California. So aggressive driving and, and then heart or stomach problems. So we respond in one of four ways to anxiety. It's either fight. I tend to be a fighter. Uh, or flight, that's what Nancy tends to do. I just want to escape and get away from all of that. Or the third way is just fright. You're immobilized. You're paralyzed. You don't know what to do. But the fourth way is the appropriate way, and you respond in faith. And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this text. He's going to show us how to respond in faith. Grab your sermon notes there. Follow along on the intro. Anxiety issues are Anxiety issues in our modern times are out of control, to say the least. And so the key to finding joy in anxiety is learning how to apply, listen to me, it's learning how to apply cosmic principles or eternal principles to common or temporal places through spiritual disciplines. So it's taking cosmic principles, God's word, all that we have in Christ Jesus, and bringing them into our, our common places, our temporal places. So what we have to do is we've got to get good at applying who Christ is and what he's done for us specific to where our hearts are most restless or anxious. And so our modern culture tends to give us techniques that only deals with the symptoms to where the Bible, God's word, gives us eternal truths that deal with the cause of our anxiety. You need to know the difference between the two because you can pick up a book out there or a magazine or watch uh, on YouTube and they're going to help you work through your anxiety, but they're going to typically give you a technique. They're not going to help you to deal with the root issue. Modern culture will give you relaxation techniques, think positive thoughts, slow your pace, reduce your schedule, balance your life, watch your diet or sleep patterns, and all of those are good, but they're not dealing with the root of our problem with anxiety. 
They may help you with that anxiety, but they don't get to the root, the root problem. Techniques or methods are a band-aid on our problems. Like someone having a chronic headache and you take a load of ibuprofen to mask the pain rather than to deal with the cause, which could be diet, sleep, brain tumor, excessive stress, or dehydration. <laughs> you weren't supposed to laugh at that, okay? It could be. <laughs> Why do I have these headaches? You got a brain tumor. Okay. And, um, and so it could be any number of those things. But if you're masking the pain all the time, you're not going to get to the root of the problems. The Bible always starts with a big picture. What is the purpose of life? What happens after we die? Is there a God? Are there moral absolutes? Is there a judgment? These are questions of epistemology. And modern books, magazines, uh, don't ask those questions. And so they're going to give you a technique that deals with the symptoms. God's Word gives you the truth to deal with the root of our problem with anxiety. And so Paul was in prison, chained to a Praetorian guard, a Roman guard, 24-7, with the possibility of being executed under extreme anxiety and yet he was full of joy. And so Paul's going to teach us how to deal with the root of anxiety by applying cosmic principles to common places. Now this fits into the second G of our 5G process of full devotion to Christ. Remember we talked about that a few weeks back. So fully devoted followers of Christ are genuine, growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. This is the second G. This fits in within the second G of a growing Christian. This is what, what growing Christians do. We have to work through our anxiety issues, our stress issues, our worry problems. And so Paul is going to help us with that. So how can you have joy in anxiety? Here's your first fill in the blank. It's on your notes. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Look at verse 1 of our text. He says, therefore, anytime there's a therefore, you've got to ask, what's it therefore? You go back to the previous verses, and he's saying, therefore, because, because of this, because our citizenship is in heaven, heaven sets the standards for us, it gives us our values, it gives us a purpose, meaning, and hope in life. So therefore, because of that, my brothers, listen to the tender words of of the Apostle Paul, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now the word stand firm, the idea here is a commanding officer to his soldiers to hold their position on the battlefield. Now immediately what came to mind for me uh, was uh, in Braveheart. You know that scene in Braveheart where William Wallace is on his horse and he's rallied all of Scotland. All these Scottish soldiers are about ready to face off with their English oppressors. And so he gives this speech as he's kind of riding the horse in front of the troops. How many remember that in the movie? Okay. And so he's, he's giving this speech. And at the end of the speech, what does he say? He says, they can take our lives that's right. And they will never take our freedom. And immediately I want to go out and paint my face blue and buy a sword. Yeah. And so, uh, so it's, I mean, it's just that inspiring scene where, yeah, let's go get them. That's the idea here. Stand firm in the Lord. Now notice he says, um, stand firm not in your strength 
but in the Lord's strength and what he provides for you. So stand firm in the Lord. Now, is this in other places in Scripture? Yeah, it's throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, which is the best uh, spiritual warfare text in the Bible, and Paul starts off by saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand, there it is, take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's coming after you. And he goes on, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So it's not the people in your lives, it's not the circumstances in your life, it's not the things in your life, it's, it's, there's a spiritual dimension there are evil forces that are coming down on you, coming after you. That's what he says. So we got to take our stand. Stand firm in the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy, and he said in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of what? Oh, that was weak. You guys know what it was. Are you guys familiar with that verse? You, you seem as though a little hesitant. So fight the good fight of what? That's right. Let me do it again. Fight the good fight of what? That's right. You got to fight the good fight of faith. And so, fear, worry, and anxiety is rooted in unbelief. So fight the good fight of faith. It's almost as if, uh, really, Paul is saying, as he's encouraging us to stand firm in the Lord how we can have joy and anxiety, stand firm in the Lord. Don't compromise the truth of the gospel. Don't collapse under the pressure of life. Don't go AWOL and flee the battlefield. And, and so you, what you have to say to yourself through this is, is I'm not going to let fear, worry, and anxiety get the best of me. I'm gonna fight the good fight of faith. You've gotta do that. You've gotta stand up against the anxiety, worry, and fear in your life or it will get the best of you. Now, note how Paul applies cosmic principles to common places. And I'm gonna do this with each one of the points. You can see this. So, cosmic principles, common places. Stand firm, those are the common places, in the Lord. That's the cosmic principle. Bring, rely on his strength and his power. So stand firm in the Lord. Here's the next one, be at peace with everyone. Next fill in the blank on your notes. Be at peace with everyone. Now, why? Because nothing brings greater anxiety into your life than relational conflict. How many would agree with that? Show of hands? Yeah. Relational conflict brings a lot of anxiety. Listen to what he says here in our text, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So, obviously, there was a conflict between these two gals. And then he goes on, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. So he's asking someone that's part of that fellowship to be a mediator in this conflict. Now, not to be confused with triangulation. You guys know what triangulation is? Is where I'm offended by somebody, I immediately go to a friend to kind of get them on my side, but that actually becomes slander and gossip and because they're, they're not part of the solution or the problem, and so you're drawing others in, you begin to triangulate and you begin to uh, rally your team's support, which is not good. You actually need someone that is really neutral and uh, 
They're not biased. They're very objective. And that's what he's doing here. You need to have a, maybe a third party. If you can't work it out, you get a third party. And that's what Paul is talking about here. My true companion. And notice how he describes these women. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, notice this, whose names are in the book of life. So it tells us in Romans 12, 18, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So relationships are are a two-way street. You can only take care of your side of the street, but what he's saying here, take care of your side of the street. Above all else, it says... It's not that verse. Another verse popped into my head right then. But, it, but it, what he's saying is, as far as it concerns you, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So take care of your side of the street regardless of how they respond on the other side of the street. Don't be drug in to the battle against them in any way. It's so easy to respond like they're responding to you. He's saying, don't do that. As far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone, take care of your side of the street, regardless of how they might respond. Now, it tells us, and I, I gave you these cross-references here on your notes, Matthew 5, 23 through 26 uh, talks about uh, what you are to do if you are the offender in the conflict. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 tells us what to do if we are the offended. So let me ask you a question. You can respond out loud. Let's see if you know the answer to this. Who should make the first move, the offender or the offended? Both. Who who of you were thinking both? Okay, both, 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 because that's biblical. So whether you are the offended or the offender, you make the move for reconciliation. Now, this is what you got to keep in mind as it relates to reconciliation. It only takes one to forgive. It only takes one to forgive. So whether you're ever, ever reconciled with that person or they ever want to reconcile with you, it, it, it doesn't matter. You can forgive because Christ has forgiven you. And when you understand the degree to which he has forgiven you, oh my goodness, you'll be able to forgive others. Because what others have done to you is nothing compared to what you've done to Christ and his forgiveness for you, and it should overflow your life. So it only takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. You can only take care of your side of the street. You might want to reconcile, but there's not anything you can do about it. So it takes two to reconcile, but it takes, it takes time and performance to establish trust. So, so here's the deal. You can, uh, you can forgive someone and maybe not reconcile. You can reconcile with someone and not trust them. Does that make sense? So if there's an abuse in the situation, you can reconcile, but it, it's not wise to really trust them, and you begin to establish boundaries as it relates to that so that you can reestablish trust. Trust, trust takes time over performance. It's time and performance, and so you begin to reestablish that trust. Now, what do you do if you've done everything you can to reestablish that trust with the person and they still don't trust you? Well, what would you do? Well, it, it could be that they're using that as a form of manipulation, they're trying to control you, or, or it, could be, it could be that they haven't dealt 
with some unresolved hurts in their life and they can't really trust anybody because of past issues, not, not in regards to you, but in regards to someone else in their life. And so they still have unresolved hurts in their life. And, and by the way, unresolved past hurts impacts present relationships. If you don't work on the junk from your past, it's gonna affect your relationships in the present. And so that's why he's saying, that's why he's saying, be at peace with everyone. Take care of your side of the street so you can forgive someone without reconciling with them. You can forgive someone and reconcile with them but not trust them. Trust can't be demanded but earned over time based on performance. And so as believers, we should be the most loving, forgiving, reconciling people on this planet. Why is that? Because we are the most loved, forgiven, and reconciled people on this planet. When you understand what Christ Jesus has done for us, oh my goodness, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like his forgiveness, his love, and his reconciliation. He reconciled us back to the Father with his death his life, his death, his resurrection. That's ours in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. And so, note how Paul applies cosmic principles to common places in this. He says, agree in the Lord. So you'd agree, common places, in the Lord, cosmic principle, whose names are in the book of life. Don't forget what you have in Christ Jesus whose names are in the book of life. So whether it's politics or wearing masks or not wearing masks, if our ultimate identity is union and communion with Christ, that our names are written in the book of life, we should be able to love, serve, treat others with respect, regardless of whether they agree with us or disagree with us. Now, if you can't do it, it's because your ultimate identity is in something other than Christ. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about these verses as he's combining these verses and this is our segue to the next verse. So he's talking about relational conflict here, Paul is, relational conflict, and then he moves right into verse four. What is verse four? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now listen to what Spurgeon says about these verses. I love it. He says this, people who are very happy, especially very happy in the Lord, are not apt to either are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. That's good. I needed that. I'm sure you did too. And so... So the next, the next idea here is, so stand firm in the Lord, be at peace with everyone. Here's the third thing on your notes, third thing we need to do if we're gonna have joy in anxiety. Practice the presence of God. This is my favorite out of all of them. I love the presence of God. I think it's the best thing about being a Christian. We have the presence of God. And this is what he's saying in verse four, rejoice in the Lord. How often are we to rejoice in the Lord? Always. So rejoice in the Lord 
always. Again, I say, rejoice. It's almost like, don't forget this. Got to remind you of this. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's hard. Yeah, it's supernatural. Rejoice in the Lord always. What is he talking about? Man, just practice his presence. Enjoy his presence in your life. Because in his presence is fullness of joy. Just celebrate him. Enjoy him. Talk to him. Have a continual conversation with him. Rejoice in all that you have in him. Now let me give you some verses here. Uh, these aren't on your notes. You might want to write these down to kind of help us to see this. Proverbs 17.22. Proverbs 17.22. A joyful heart is good medicine. So when you rejoice in the Lord, oh my goodness, that's good medicine. You want your heart healed? Rejoice in the Lord. That's good medicine. Proverbs 15.13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. So I would have you to turn and look at the people sitting around you. Some of them are wearing masks, some are not, but, but do you see some cheerful faces? It's because they have a glad heart. So I can tell that you have a cheerful face even with a mask on because I can see your eyes kind of go, oh. Okay, so I see that. I see that cheerfulness. So, so a glad heart, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. Proverbs 15, 15. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. So, so you rejoice in the Lord always? Oh my goodness, you're going to have a continual feast. There's going to be nothing like that in your life. Continual feast. One of our greatest advertisements as Christians is, is joy. And so this is the theme of Philippians. Joy, rejoicing, or gladness is used 19 times in the book. This is why we titled this study, Rejoice in the Lord Always. This is the basis of, of Paul's letter now, let me give you the definition, once again, that we've been working with throughout this series. So joy is a buoyancy. So life can push you down. It can't keep you down. I always envision, imagine, you know, having a big, a big beach ball in a backyard swimming pool, and you try to, if you've ever tried to do this before, you try to get up on top of it or stand on it, and you try to balance yourself, and then what happens? You fall off of it, and immediately comes to the surface. That's our lives. That life can push us down, it can't keep us down. Why is that? Because of the pleasures we find in the eternal privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. So it gets us, we get right back up because we're, we're applying cosmic, cosmic principles to the common places of our lives. And it's dealing with the root of our anxiety. And, and so let me give you a couple examples of that. For instance, Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorite verses. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So that's, that's a wonderful verse, isn't it? That's a beautiful verse. That's, that's what we need. That's ours. Right here, right now. He's with us. We have his presence. We can practice his presence. We can rejoice in the Lord always. And I say again, rejoice. And so here's another one, Psalm 16:8. We sang that song, Psalm 16, the very last song that we sang, in his presence is fullness of joy. Well, listen to this. He says in 16:8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Shaken? Yeah. You will not be overwhelmed by anxiety and fear and worry. So what do I have to do? I have set the Lord always before me, practice his presence. 
I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, because he's my strength, because he's my help, because he's my hope, because he's my happiness. I will not be shaken, is what he's saying. And then he finishes up that uh, Psalm 16. In his presence. This is the best part of being a Christian. In his presence. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his presence. He will never leave you or forsake you. You have his presence. In his presence is fullness of joy. It's fullness of joy. Buoyancy in life based on the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that are yours in Christ Jesus. So the more we see that God is for us, will take care of us, has our future in his hands, and is with us right now, the less we will experience excessive fear, worry, and anxiety. Now, remember what Jesus said to the disciples in John 16, He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have worry and anxiety and fear. Those things are gonna be part of this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So now listen to me. Everybody look up here. This is what you've gotta understand. Nowhere in the Bible does it promise us a painless or problem-free life. In fact, it promises us that in this world you will have pain and problems. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So nowhere in the Bible does it promise us a painless or problem-free life, but this is what it promises us. His presence, his power, his peace in all of life. Take heart, I have overcome the world. That's ours in Christ Jesus. Now, what will that do in my life? Look at verse five of our text. What will that do? What, what difference will that make in my life if I really embrace that and believe that? I'm practicing the presence of God. Listen to what he says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's the presence of God. The Lord is with you. Reasonableness, the word reasonableness means this. This is a radical evenness of temper, moderation, or balance. So let me, uh, the best commentary for scripture is always scripture. So let me give you a commentary of this and see if you can follow me. It's, it's, it's a kind of a unique verse or set of verses, 1 Corinthians 7, 29 through 31. And this is what, listen what Paul says. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, so they're under heavy persecution. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What? I, I know I'm married, but I'm just going to pretend I'm not married. That's not what he's saying, okay? I, I knew guys that like that, that uh, that wasn't very wise of them to do that, but that's not what he's talking about here. He goes on, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. How many are familiar with the kind of metaphor, don't put all your eggs in one basket? You guys know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, he's saying don't put all your eggs in, in, in one basket, especially if it's a temporal basket, because eventually it's gonna go away. Don't build your sense of meaning, hope, and happiness on temporal things. Build it on eternal, on the eternal things is what he's saying here. So 
If what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for excessive fear, worry, and anxiety. That's why I love what John Newton said. He wrote Amazing Grace. He says this, if you understand the grace of God, it makes, listen to me, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. The worst times bearable and the best times leavable. This is a holy moderation. See, if you have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. If you have the commendation of God, all other commendations are trivial. So as, as, as a Christian, a Christian has sorrow but not despair during times of loss because it doesn't take away their ultimate joy in Christ. A Christian has happiness from good times, but it's not his ultimate happiness. It's this holy moderation. So when we get stressed out, we have forgotten who God is, what he's done for us, who we are in light of that, and how that applies specifically to the areas of our lives. I love this quote. I don't know who who said it, but I I heard it a number of years ago, and it, it says this, joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart, announcing the king is in residence here. I like that. That's good. So note how Paul applies cosmic principles to common places uh, with this point, practice the presence of God. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. So cosmic principle, common places common places, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Let that bring balance to your life. There's the common place revealing God is near, cosmic principle. So you can see how he's working this stuff deep down into our hearts. So stand firm in the Lord, be at peace with everyone, practice God's presence. Here's the, here's the next one, the fourth one. Choose not to worry, but pray. Choose not to worry, but pray. That's a great statement. In fact, that's, that would be a really good slogan for, for some of us to, to write on the mirror. First thing in the morning, we see, choose not to worry, but pray. Choose not to worry, but pray. Maybe carry it around on a card with you just to remind you. Choose not to worry, but pray. Choose not to worry, but pray. Say that with me. Choose not to worry, but pray. Say it again. Choose not to worry, but pray. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, choose not to worry, but pray. So choose not to worry, but pray. I have a major question for you. If you practice that statement, what are you going to do with all of your time now? Okay. So for some of us, the statement would go like this, choose not to pray, but worry. That's that's what we fall, we we fall into that. But, But this is what he's saying. This is a commandment. Do not be anxious about anything. So choose not to worry about anything. What's the Greek for anything? Anything? Huh? Choose not to worry about anything. Pray about everything. What's the Greek for everything? Everything. Everything. You think he's making a point here? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Do not be anxious about anything. It's a commandment. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So he says, take it to God in prayer. Then he describes the kind of prayer. Supplication is where we bring our request to God. But then he also says, with thanksgiving. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Why would he say thanksgiving? Now, our old English, our English word, worry, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that means to strangle. Worry can strangle you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The word anxious that's found right here in verse 6, it means literally to be torn apart. So anxiety happens when the thoughts in our minds and the feelings in our heart pull us in different directions and tear us apart. So he's just saying, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be pulled every which way but loose. Just don't let it get the best of you. Don't let anxiety, worry, fear, stress get a hold of your life. Don't let that happen. Don't be anxious, but pray. Anxiety happens when the thoughts in our mind and the feelings in our heart pull in different directions and tear us apart. Proverbs 12.25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So, so what is he teaching us here? Well, he's telling us choosing not to worry but to pray is about focusing on God's character. So when, what's going on? What are we focused on when we worry? All of our problems, our circumstances, all the things that are happening in our life. So he says, take your eyes off of that and pray. Put your eyes on him. Look to him. Focus on God, his, his character. And uh, here's what is really important for you to know about the character of God is not only his greatness, but his goodness. If your adversary can't get you to doubt God's existence, he will work to get you to doubt God's goodness. If he gets you to doubt God's goodness, he's got you. What I mean by goodness is that he always has your best interest at heart. He is never holding out on you. No one loves you like he loves you. He's going to take care of you. You can rest in that. He's perfect in love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power, and he will do what is in your best interest. That's his goodness. But the enemy will come after you and try to get you to question the goodness of God. It goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, and that's what they did. They begin to, they felt like God was holding out on them, and they begin to take a path that was outside of, of his commandments. And so that's, that's what the enemy typically does. Psalm 55, 22, it says, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. He will not allow us to be overwhelmed by fear, worry, anxiety. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. There's his goodness. He's gonna take care of you. He has your best interest at heart. Tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast your, this is, I think this is old King James, cast your cares upon him because he what? He cares for you. He really cares for you. You can give him your problems because he has your best interest at heart. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 really expresses that really clearly. It's, 
it says this, ask, literally in the Greek it says, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. He's talking about prayer, going to God with your request. Because it, it, for everyone who asks will receive, all who seek will find, all who knock it will be open. And then he goes on and he says this, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to you? He wants to give good gifts to you. How many, who have, how many here have kids and grandkids that you love to give good gifts to? Show of hands. Okay. Okay, so how many here who have kids and grandkids do not like giving good gifts to them? Anybody? Well, that's an insane question. There's not a... There's not a parent probably on this planet or a grandparent on this planet that doesn't want to give good gifts to their kids or grandkids. So think about your own heart towards your kids or grandkids. Oh my goodness, I love my kids. I love my grandkids. Oh, I love giving good things to them. Even more so does your Father in heaven love to give good gifts to you. So when I think about my heart towards my kids and grandkids, oh, wow, God, I'm evil. I'm evil and I'm sinful and I, and I have a heart for my kids even more so. God's not evil and he loves us. He has our best interest at heart. What are you sweating about? What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? What are you stressed out over? He's got you covered. He's got you taken care of. He loves you. He has your best interest at heart. Now, what did he mean by thankfulness? We, he meant by thankfulness. So, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God. Why thanksgiving? Because he has your best interest at heart. Because of that. But also, another thing that kind of came to mind as I was thinking out the implications of this, I thought immediately of, of the incarnation. You guys are familiar with the doctrine of the incarnation? Uh, this is basically really what it is. It's that... that our Savior loves us so much and hates our sin and suffering that he came from heaven to earth and got involved in our problems. And so whatever you're going through, Christ has gone through and he understands and he can help you. That's part of the doctrine of the incarnation. Hebrews 4 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So he invites us to come boldly before the throne of grace, to receive mercy and to find grace to help us in our time of need, because he understands and he can help us in our time of need. Jesus knows what it's like to have someone you love betray you and abandon you. Jesus knows what it's like to have someone steal from you. Jesus knows what it's like to have someone lie about you. Jesus knows, knows what it's like to have someone press false charges against you. Jesus knows what it's like to have friends fail you. Jesus knows what it's like to have so much anxiety that you sweat drops of blood. Jesus knows what it's like to have people spit at you and mock you and torture you to death. He understands. That's why we can approach him with thanksgiving. He understands. He can help us. And he has our best interest at heart. He always does. And, and that's, that's the gospel. And, and not only that, we know we can, we can approach him with thanksgivings. We know that our prayer makes a difference. Our prayers 
Because prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. James 4, 2, you have not because you ask not. James 5, 16, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Things happen when you pray. That's what he's saying. So we can, we can come to him with thanksgiving, not only because, not only because of the fact that he, he understands and he knows and he's always gonna do what's in our best interest and that prayer, things happen through our prayers, but God will give to you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. You see, sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he calms his child in the storm, but either way, you can trust his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power, working for you and your best interest. And so that's important. That's, that's, uh, that's why we can't, we can't really understand why things happen any more than a three-year-old can understand why he can't eat candy, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and stay up all hours of the night and play with butcher knives, okay? (laughs) That's why the Bible says, unless you come to God as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So a little child is humbled before their dad or mom, knowing that they know what's best. They don't usually, okay? Like a three-year-old, no, I want that butcher knife, okay? That's not a good idea. But that's how often we are. And it tells us in, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above our thoughts and ways. How high is the heavens above the earth? Well, the last I measured, it's immeasurable. So what is he saying? It's, it's beyond your comprehension, oftentimes what he's doing in your life. So you have to trust him and believe that he always has your best interest at heart. Note how Paul applies cosmic principles to common places. He's saying, don't be anxious, pray. So anxious, being anxious is in the commonplace, and he's saying, hey, pray. That's the cosmic principle, and do it with thanksgiving because God has your best interest at heart. Do you, do you hear that? And so, so stand firm in the Lord. So how can we have joy in anxiety, stand firm in the Lord, be at peace with everyone, practice God's presence, choose not to worry, but pray. Here's the last one, guard your thoughts. Guard your thoughts. Verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there is any excellence, if there is any thing worthy of praise, think about these things. I memorized it in, in another translation. It's pretty much the same. And I memorized it like this. Uh, Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. What is he saying here? You know what he's telling us? He's talking about God's word. This is God's word he's describing. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admir- admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Let God's word saturate your mind, your heart, your life so that it gives you a biblical worldview as you face the difficulties of life. And so that's a description of God's word. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Romans 12.2, it says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind in God's word. So the, so. What I've learned years ago, and it was really helpful for me, is I begin to become more self-aware of my thoughts. And this is what I learned, that the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding 
your attention. So when you go to bed at night, what's on your mind? When you wake up in the morning, what's on your mind? When you have those times when there's nothing demanding your attention, what's on your mind? I think you'll be frightened by that, uh, what's on your mind. I was. I began to realize, oh, I I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm, Maybe not because there's other things that are on my mind more than he is. I'm not practicing his presence. You see, the things you daydream about in your spare time are ultimately the things you serve, the things that you worship. See, your life is no greater or no worse than the thoughts you entertain in your head. And so, your best defense against the lies in your head is the rehearsal of God's word down deep into your heart. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. A biblical worldview is what he's talking about. Think about these things. That's why it tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it Moment by moment, day after day, I'm chasing down my crazy thoughts. And believe me, they are crazy. And you have crazy thoughts too. You're just maybe not self-aware of them. And the more self-aware you are, you begin to go, oh, wow, why am I so dominated by that brain debate over that relationship or that problem or that issue or any number of things? So you chase those thoughts down and bring them into the obedience of Christ And that's why it's important, because we need to chase those thoughts down. We need to take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. So how we mentally evaluate the events of our life determines how we will feel and behave in response to those events. See, it's not the events in your life that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's your evaluation It's what you're saying to yourself about those events. And so what you have to do is you have to have a biblical worldview. If you have a biblical worldview as you face the events of life and as you evaluate them with that biblical worldview that God is for you, he's not against you, he loves you, he will never leave you or forsake you, he's got your best interest at heart, that's a biblical worldview that's taking those cosmic principles down into the common places of our lives and beginning to live that out. And so, that's, that's incredibly important. So note how Paul applies cosmic principles to common places. Let God's word dominate your thoughts, giving you a biblical worldview in this anxious culture. So here's the last point. It's on your notes. Practice these things, and the God of peace, and the peace of God will be with you. Look at verse 9, last verse. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Stop just there for a minute. (laughs) How many grew up in a home where the parents said, do as I say, not as I do? Anybody? Paul's not doing that, okay? He's not saying, do as I say, not as I do. No, Paul practices what he preaches. So parents, we need to practice what we preach. We need to say to our kids, do as I do. Your mom and daddy are doing this because we want to honor God. We love God. So we're asking you to do this. That's important. So what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Notice this. And the God of peace will be with you. Verse 7. And if the God of peace is with you, 
The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is that? Because you're taking these cosmic principles and bringing them down into the common places of your life and it begins to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's not a denial of reality, but an embracing of a greater reality that overwhelms our smaller reality of our difficulties. And so what's the difference... What's the difference between seeking the peace of God versus seeking the God of peace? So what I'm saying here is that don't seek the peace of God, actually seek the God of peace. Seeking the peace of God means that your prayer life only lights up when you are in troubled times. But seeking the God of peace, your prayer life is always lit up regardless of the times because you're practicing his presence, you're rejoicing in the Lord always. So don't just seek the the peace of God. Seek the God of peace and you'll have the peace of God. So, So how do you seek the God of peace so that you can have the peace of God? Well, you need to have peace with God. And in fact, how do you have peace with God? It says in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So what do, you, what do you need to do? Well, you need to acknowledge your sins that separate you from God. That's the, that's the first step is, man, I'm, I'm a long ways from God. I'm separated from God. My sin separates me from God. But you also need to believe that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to die in your place for your sins, to reconcile you back to the Father. So you believe that he is your Savior. You believe that he came to die in your place for your sins, and then you confess him as Lord and Savior. You give your life to him, and you begin to live your life for him. If you've never done that before, you can do that this morning as I'm praying here at the end. And if maybe this is the first time you've ever done that or you're renewing that, I'd love to hear about that. You could come forward and let me know. I'd love to celebrate that with you. That's really, really an important question. Do you know him? Do you know the God of peace? The only way you can know the God of peace is to have peace with God, and that comes through Jesus Christ. And if you have peace with God then you will know the God of peace and it will give you the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Anytime I don't have the peace of God, I go back to the fact that I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I'm not living in the reality of that. So I go back to that. Wait a minute, I have peace with God. He's for me, he's not against me, he loves me, he's gonna take care of me. He has all my, all my best interest at heart. That's peace with God. And then little by little, I begin to experience the peace of God that rules my heart and my mind, protects my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Jesus, uh, Jesus said this in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Those are good words from our Savior. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace, your goodness, your peace. Anxiety issues in our modern culture are out of control. We confess that our excessive fear, worry, and anxiety are a result of unbelief and a failure to trust your perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power working for our best interests in your glory. We are forever thankful that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have peace with you, we can have the peace that comes from you in every circumstance. 
We ask that in our battle against anxiety issues that we would stand firm in your strength, be at peace with everyone, practice your presence, choose not to worry, but pray with thanksgiving, and above all else, guard our thoughts. And may you, the God of peace, be with us, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.